So if we are reading Revelation by starting in the beginning, going through the book, and finishing at the end, the real question is how do we interpret Revelation? So first we need to figure out how do we interpret Scripture? Generally speaking, when you're taught about reading the Bible, you ask two primary questions. What did it reasonably mean to the original audience? Now what do I mean by reasonably? You cannot read the Gospel of Mark and logically or reasonably conclude that it is about polar bears dancing in Alaska. Polar bears aren't mentioned. What is this? And then we have to ask, okay, we see what the message says. We see what it could reasonably mean to the original audience. Now, how do I make application of that in my life today? So how do we interpret Revelation then? Easy. See above. <laughs> because here's what we usually do. We read from Genesis to Jude, minus some sections of Daniel and Ezekiel that we tie into Revelation, and we say, what did it reasonably mean to the original audience? Okay, how do I make application of that today? Then all of a sudden we get to the book of Revelation and every single thing that we have learned about how to read and interpret the Bible, we take it and we throw it out the window. And we suddenly say, okay, this is about, wait, Apache helicopters, the COVID vaccine, this over here, Russia, I mean, the Cold War. Russia and this and China and the, I mean, I remember seeing all of these things growing up and I'm like, okay, if that's what it's supposed to be, maybe I don't understand it. And then I actually read the Bible and read the book of Revelation and was like, I don't see any of the stuff they were talking about. Maybe I missed it. Let me try again. And I went searching for the stuff and I couldn't find it. So how do we then come together and figure out reading Revelation? I think one of the first things we have to do is recognize what type of literature Revelation is. So would you say that you read a poem differently than you read, let's say, a novel? So if you're reading poetry differently, differently than a novel, and you read that differently than you understand a play, then one of the key things is to figure out what kind of writing is Revelation. Well, the opening of the book lets us know two things. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must take place soon. He made it known by sending his servant, his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Therefore, we know that revelation is prophecy. Now, the next thing we know is this. There is another genre of literature called apocalypse. And so the word revelation that we find in the very beginning of the book is literally from the Greek word apocalypsis or apocalypse. So there's this unveiling that takes place. So first of all, what is prophecy? 
we recognize that Old Testament prophecy normally saw the future, and this is important, saw the future not as predetermined by divine foreordination, but as a just consequence of past and present action on the part of the individual or of Israel as a whole. Prime example, when you look at all the prophecy in the Old Testament, it's all predicated upon the law. So if you jump to reading the prophets without reading the law, so you know like the first five books of the Bible attributed to Moses, where it says, if you are faithful to keep my law, these blessings will come upon you. But if you disobey and break the commandments that I have given you, these are all the curses that will come upon you. So, when the prophets began to talk about exile, and the prophets began to talk about how you will be taken away from the land, that is actually one of the curses that was associated that you find in Numbers and Deuteronomy for not obeying the law of God. So therefore, it's not predetermination by God for what's to take place, but it is a just consequence for the actions of God's people for disobeying the covenant. Now, people say, well, we're New Testament Christians, right? Well, yes, we are New Testament. Old Testament's in the Bible too, but let's go to the New Testament. Then according to St. Paul, the function of Christian prophecy is essentially pastoral. In other words, it is one means by which the Lord says to the church that which he has to say. He's communicating to the church. Now remember, if we go to 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about how prophecy is for building up and edifying the body. And so when we look at the text of Scripture and we see, hey, don't disobey God. Hey, remain faithful. That is still building up and edifying the body because how are people going to come to know the Lord if they look at the church and they see that the church is not living up to what they are called to live up to? So even these words that we receive in the writings of Scripture, particularly in Revelation, they call us to do that which we are supposed to do, and that in and of itself is a witness to the world around us, leading to the growth of the church and the honor and glory of God within the world. So that's prophecy. Now, apocalypse. The famous genre that has all these movies about the end of the world as we know it. Now, I'm going to give you a very technical definition, then I'm going to break it down, okay? So, apocalypse, I'm going to read it just to make sure I get it all right, is a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human recipient, disclosing a transcendent reality which is both temporal insofar as it envisages eschatological salvation and spatial insofar as it, invo as it involves another supernatural world. Now, how many of you understood that? Okay, because let me tell you, the first time I read it, I went, what? Can somebody explain this to me? But let me break it down. 
It's revelatory literature. In other words, when we look at the book of Revelation, we see what's happening in the world around us, but then there's an unfurling and an unrolling of the curtain, and you can see what's happening behind the scenes. For example, in Revelation 13, you have the beast, and Satan gives the beast his power and great authority. Though there's a physical realm that you see, there are some spiritual behind-the-scenes activities that are taking place, and so that highlights the revelatory nature of what's going on. It's in a narrative framework. It's telling a story, and the revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being to a human. So, for example, the angel that goes to the prophet and says, hey, what does this mean? Or, hey, let me explain this to you. An otherworldly being, and it discloses the transcendent reality that takes place in time and points to the salvation of God's people, but then deals with things not only on earth, but in heaven, highlighting that supernatural world that's also in place. So what is this book all about? God is king. If you need to sum up the gospel, if you need to sum up revelation, God is king. And that means that Christians are citizens of God's kingdom. So then that leaves us with this question. How am I supposed to live? As a citizen of God's kingdom, how am I supposed to live? And that is what Revelation points us to. It says, hey, remember, God is king. He is seated on his throne. He is high and lifted up. He is worthy of your worship. You're a citizen of his kingdom. Therefore, you live like this. Now, we're going to get into a little bit of structure here. Revelation is broken down into, I'm going to give you three main parts, and then we're going to break down that four vision section. So you have a prologue, the very beginning, the introduction of the work. You then have four distinct visions that John presents to the people. And then you have an epilogue, a nice little fancy word for a conclusion that wraps everything up and puts a little bow on it. So you have your beginning, your four visions, and your ending. So I want to take a look for a moment at the prologue. This is found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. What we end up finding is the origins of the apocalypse, which we have read already. You know that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, God gave it, angel sent, John is the recipient. We know the authorship of the apocalypse, both divine and human. God's involved, John is involved. Now, what about the recipients? Verse 4 gives us this saying, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. And then he hits on their relationship with each other and with God. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead the ruler of God's uh, the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us so you're loved by God and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. 
So we see that there's this relationship of being loved by God, that he has redeemed people from their sins. Now let's think about this for a moment. This whole language of redemption, this whole idea of being a kingdom, priests unto God. If you look in the Old Testament, by the way, all the roads of the Old Testament and the New lead you into Revelation. The idea of being a kingdom, priests unto God. In Revelation chapter 19, after God has redeemed the people of Israel from the bondage of the Egyptians, and they go into the wilderness and they arrive at Mount Sinai, God establishes his covenant with them and tells them that you shall be my treasured possession among the nations, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Now, what was the responsibility of priests in Israel? They served as intermediaries between the people and God. Therefore, Israel as a nation was to serve as an intermediary between all the nations and God to introduce these people to God, to intercede on their behalf to God in order that they not be deemed as a special people by everybody else, but that these other people might be incorporated into them and identified as the people of God. Therefore, what we end up seeing is that if we as the church are called to be a kingdom, priests unto God the Father because of what Christ has done, it is our job, therefore, to intercede before God on behalf of the world in order that they might come to know him and in order that they might come and join us in giving glory and honor to God and join in the mission that God has given his people to go out and reach the lost. Good time for a call. <laughs> now check this out. Remember that whole thing about God being king? And you ease over it very easily if you're not paying very close attention. In verse 4, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. God is depicted as having a throne. Well, only rulers have thrones. People of great power have thrones. Now, what we're going to see is that Satan has a throne too, which reveals that he has a kingdom. So then the question becomes, to which kingdom do you belong? To which kingdom do you belong? Now, as we look at the visions, the visions, remember, there are four visions. They span from chapter 1, verse 9, all the way to chapter 22, verse 5. I'm going to give a quick breakdown regarding this. Because there are three distinct features that identify the markers for every vision of Revelation. In each of these visions, at the very beginning, John identifies as being in the Spirit. Notice he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Then he is in the, he's taken up in the Spirit into heaven. Then he was taken up by the Spirit to a high mountain. Then he, so he's always in the Spirit. Then there's visionary language in each one of these where he's seeing something or he's being shown something. And all of a sudden you have this. And the interesting piece of it is this. In every situation, 
that he's being shown something or there's language of sight related to him at the beginning of the vision, it's always spoken by an angel. Now, some of you might be looking in your Bibles right now, and you say, you know what, Dan? When I look at chapter 1, verse 11, it's red letters in my Bible. That means Jesus is speaking, right? I sometimes wonder if we got those red letters wrong. Let me explain. I'm, right, I'm, I'm working on a paper about this right now. Bear with me. Don't stone me yet, okay? So we see that there is a voice that speaks to John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. Then we see immediately following that, that there is another voice that begins to speak in chapter 2, verse 1, and takes us all the way to the end of chapter 3. Then, when you get to chapter 4, he says, after this I looked. This is chapter 4, verse 1. And behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Not only that, but notice, this voice sounds like a trumpet, right? But when you go back to chapter 1, you hear that first voice that sounds like a trumpet, but when John sees the one like a son of man, who we recognize to be Jesus, what does his voice sound like? It actually says in his description that his voice was like the roar of many waters. Chapter 1, verse 15. So the voice of Jesus in his vision is like the roar of many waters, but the voice of the angel sounds like a trumpet, and that's what catches his attention. Therefore, you have this figure, the angelic voice, who is speaking to John and inaugurates his visionary process every single time. So now, we get to the visions. So you got all these visions, so what are they all about? What are these visions? Who's speaking? What's happening? What is all this stuff? Does this mean that what John saw is our day? I mean, is this like some war in the Middle East? Is this the COVID vaccine? I mean, you know, what's going on? Let me just say, not trying to make some political statement about vaccines, but just to be safe, because I had somebody tell me I was taking the mark of the beast when I got vaccinated, I said, look, I actually nullified all the demonic forces of evil because I took it in my left arm, not my right. I'm good. <laughs> and they were like, what? I said, well, in Revelation 13, it says right hand or forehead. I'm not letting anybody stick like a needle up here, so <laughs> that hurt way too badly. <laughs> but in the first vision, John notes that he sees one like a son of man. So he hears the voice that says, hey, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And on turning, and what we do is we assume that when John turns, he sees what he's heard. But that's not necessarily the case, especially since he describes the voices differently. And the vision that he has is one like a son of man, and it flows through. So we know that there's identification of Jesus 
and his power and his dominion. And what he ends up doing is he confronts the churches. In the second vision, beginning in chapter 4, he notes that he was to, what, come and I will show you what must take place after this. Then you get to chapter 17, after all the seals have been broken and the trumpets have been blown and the, and the vials or the bowls have been poured out, you get all of that done and then you come to, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And then you come to that fourth vision and you hear the voice saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So, Let's break it down really simply. The angel tells him at the very beginning, at least of visions 2, 3, and 4, what he's going to see. And then in the first vision, he turns around and tells you, oh, I saw one like a son of man. So everything that you read in each section of Revelation should connect you directly to what the introduction at the beginning of each section tells you the vision is going to be about. So let's jump into the first vision. Plain and simple, Jesus appears as a king. And because Jesus is king, the messages to the churches or to the assemblies is him confronting them regarding their behavior and highlights how their behavior reflects their loyalty to him. So what Jesus does is he, he comes to many churches and he's like, he says, you know what? You got this going pretty well for yourself, but you need to improve over here. You know, you're, you're doing these things well. For, so for example, to the church in Ephesus, you're standing for holiness and righteousness and you're doing all this stuff and you're standing for the truth, but you're being a jerk face for Jesus in the process. That's not how it works. Then you have a church like Smyrna where notice what he does. He appears in chapter 2 verse 8 as the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, why would Jesus appear to a church as one who died and came to life? Maybe, just maybe, it's because some of them were going to be thrown into prison. And here's the thing. The Roman prison system was not like our prison system today. If you went to prison, you're good enough as dead because you were going to die. And that means that you have people in the church who are going to suffer at the hands of the empire. And all of a sudden, the risen and glorified Christ who died under Roman execution ends up himself telling these people, you know what? I died and I came to life. And if you remain faithful to me and you are dying because of what you have done in being faithful to me, let me promise you now, you will receive the crown of life. We find all of these pieces that come together and what we end up discovering is that Jesus is confronting each church where they are. Now here's the awkward thing. Everybody gets to read everybody else's mail. So it's like, you know what, okay, you're doing really well, yeah. 
And then you know, you know that you are the one who has been doing all the horrible stuff. It's like that teacher who tries to find something nice to say about every student in the class. And then there's that kid who is like, oh, bless you. <laughs> you know, you punch people in the face really well as a bully. I mean, you, you, you come across things like that, and all of a sudden, when it comes to Jesus, he's like, you know what? I'm not holding back any punches. I have nothing good to say about you. And there are churches like that. For example, the very last church, the church in Laodicea. Notice, they're not even a divided church. They are united. They are going at it together. And Jesus says, you know what? You are neither hot nor cold, and because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. <laughs> what? I mean, <laughs> it is what it is. Because that's what we really find. It's like Jesus is confronting each church, but he speaks about those good things that they are doing when they have good things, and he speaks about the bad things they're doing. Why does he speak about the bad things? Because I cannot look at something and say, oh, well, you're doing this, so we're going to ignore the bad stuff. No, what Jesus says is come up to the standard that I've given you. You're doing these good things. That's wonderful. Now, how are you going to live out the rest of your life in these areas where you need to improve? You know what? I'm right here. I can guide you in this. I can empower you by my spirit to live the way you're supposed to live. Are you willing to do it? In some situations, it's not just that. In some situations, it's really, are you willing to give up your love of this world, your love of power, your love of money, your love of fame and fortune in order to follow after me? I'm going to pick on the Laodiceans for just a moment. Go ahead and go to Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. He says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I have no need. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable. You're poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want you to think about this for just a moment. There's a theme that flows throughout that message. You say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Sounds like this church is pretty economically stable. They got all the money they need. 
they're good to go. Now here's the thing, Laodicea was a very rich city. Historically, when there was an earthquake, they said, you know what? We don't need your tax relief, Rome. We've got this. We're wealthy enough. Now, I know people talk about the idea of hot and cold, and I get it. There are hot springs, there are cold springs. But I like to take it a little bit differently because I'm a little nerdy science guy. And I like to say this, that which is hot is distinct from that which surrounds it. That which is cold is distinct from that which surrounds it. But that which is lukewarm is indistinguishable and is taken on the character of its surroundings, so much so that it's only Jesus that can tell those who are in the church from those who aren't in the church because of the attitude and the behaviors and practices of those who are in the church in Laodicea. The second thing I look at is this. Why is Jesus outside of the church knocking on the door in order to get in? You mean to tell me you have a church full of people who are able to have church apart from Jesus? How can you worship Jesus without Jesus? Amen. That's not possible. And Jesus confronts them and tells them, you know what? You need to be zealous and repent. But notice, he gives them the answer. He tells them what they need to buy and everything they're buying, they're buying the clothes to cover their nakedness because he noted that as a problem. He's offering them gold to buy from him that they might be rich and solve their poverty. He's giving them salve to anoint their eyes if they purchase it from him to fix their blindness. And then we have to ask ourselves in our contemporary society, what are we blind to? And for what have we abandoned the call of Christ for in order to take on the attitudes and ways of our society? This is the kind of confrontation that Jesus brings to the churches. Not all the churches were being persecuted. Some were very powerful. And there's nothing wrong with them having their power, but what was wrong was their abandonment of Christ for the sake of power and their abuse of power over other people. Let's take a look at vision number two. We find that God and Christ rule over all things. We suddenly see as we open up Revelation chapter four that John is taken up to heaven. He sees the heavenly throne room. God is on the throne. And suddenly you see a lamb. And John says that the lamb is standing as though it has been slain. This is the model for Christians. I'm going to say this up front. I noted earlier, I'm a military chaplain. I took an oath to, you know, defend and support the Constitution of the United States. That's not what I'm talking about right here. What I'm wondering about, though, is if we have a Savior who died, a Savior who said that if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword, then how is it that Christians within our culture want to stand up and take up arms in the name of Jesus to confront the evils of this world? when that's not the approach Jesus himself took when confronting the enemy. But what does that do to our culture war? What does that do to the fact that 
We as followers of Jesus are called to live in the way of Jesus. And as a result, that means that that removes our forms of resistance to a passive resistance where we stand on the word of God and where sometimes that means that, you know what? Jesus was persecuted. The early church had members who suffered death. When you look at the lives of the apostles and the early church fathers, many people suffered death at the hands of the empire, at the hands of worldly government, at the hands of the ungodly. And what we choose to do, though, more often than not, is say that we will take up arms in the name of Christ and bless God, I'm going to exercise my Second Amendment and I'm going to kill the evil out there. That's not what the early church did. Not only that, but when we stop and look at it, we have to wrestle with how we navigate the pain and suffering that the church endured. And for somehow, somehow, some way, we think within our context that we are these special people who God, after centuries of the church suffering, Suddenly, we're the ones that are going to be whisked away out of the world because persecution comes? Well, where's the fairness of God in all the other people for the past 20 centuries who've suffered for his namesake? Now, if God in his grace chose to do that, that's perfectly fine. But I just think what makes us so special that we think we won't suffer? What we end up finding is that God and the Lamb receive worship. And then we see that the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls are activated. And the amazing thing is this. In Revelation chapter 7, beginning in the first verse, He says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. God pours out his wrath. God exercises his judgment, and his people are in the midst of it, but they are protected from it. Much like when you read in Exodus, when God brings plagues upon Egypt, what do we end up seeing? That the people of God who are in Goshen do not suffer in the same way. God in his power and sovereignty is able to preserve his people while he actually pours out his wrath on those around him. I guess that means that God has good aim, and so I don't have to worry about being struck by lightning if he's aiming for the person next to me. Then we see that all of a sudden the people who dwell on the earth, who are siding with the worldly empires, are the ones who suffer as Christ pours out his judgment. And you're like, but wait a minute, there was 144,000 people sealed. Okay, let me just touch that because I know that's always the big thing, the 144,000. Because you have 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, right? 
And people are like, well, what does this represent? Well, if you look at the numbers, they look a lot like a census. In the Old Testament, why would you take a census? King David took a census one time, and what happened? Lots of people died. Because you took a census in order to measure your military might and your power and what you could do as you prepared for war. And all of a sudden you have these people who are numbered and you're like, well, with 144,000, okay, let me just help you out a little bit. If you jump to Revelation 14 for a moment. The 144, the 144,000 are described in an interesting way. Chapter 14, verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth is no lie, there was no lie found, for they are blameless. Notice something, the 144,000 are all men. Maybe that means that they are a symbol for something because, I mean, is God only going to redeem men from the earth? Good grief, have mercy on us all then. <laughs> the afterlife is going to be really horrible if there are only men that are there. <laughs> Just saying. This is where my, my opinion comes in just a little bit. Revelation 14 is the worst chapter division marker in the entire Bible. Why? Because it throws everything off when we look at it. I'm pretty sure somebody was marking stuff and th their horse or something tripped and they just put another number there and they just kept going. Because here's the thing, right before you come across the 144,000 who have the seal of God upon them that we see back in chapter 7, end of chapter 13, what do you have? The mark of the beast, the famous mark of the beast, which is a name. And all of a sudden, the 144,000 have a name. And so what you have is not a question of, will you take the mark of the beast or not? The question is, which mark do you have? Are you marked by the systems of this world, or are you marked by the kingdom of God with the seal of the Spirit and the name of God upon you? That's where he leaves things as he goes and all of the wrath of God is poured out. Then we end up going to the third vision. Remember, the harlot is judged. What is she judged for? Power abuse. Plain and simple. She sits on many waters. And the text of Revelation 17 actually notes that the waters upon which she sits are people. They're nations. All of a sudden we find that Babylon is fallen in chapter 18. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And what we see is this. With the systems of the world in place, we see a call to God's people beginning in verse 4. 
Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. It's just in the middle of chapter 18, you suddenly come out of her, my people. God calls his people to come out from the systems of the world. Now, that doesn't mean go and move to another country or anything of that nature, because the kingdoms of the world have become that of God and his Christ. But what we recognize is that I can't live in the worldly system and say, you know what, I'm living like the world, but I'm a part of God's people. There's economic injustice. They're slavery. They're all of these pieces that come together. Check out Revelation chapter 18, beginning in verse 11. He says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, as she's burning up, since no one buys her cargo anymore, cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves. And all of a sudden he says that is human souls. As she begins to suffer even more, beginning in verse 19, it says, And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying aloud, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. This lets us know that in the end, God will make all things right. That in the end, God, in his time, as he tells the souls under the altar who ask how long it will be before God avenges their blood on those who dwell on the earth, he says to wait a little while longer until the full number of your brothers and sisters who are to be killed is fulfilled. And in the patient endurance of the saints, both in heaven and on earth, God, in his timing, will bring judgment. And the question is this. Though you're in the church, do you want to end up on the side of being one of those people who does not come out of her and suffers her judgments and her plagues? Or would you rather be the person who suffers at the hands of the empire and lives eternally in the kingdom of God? Babylon shed the blood of the apostles and prophets. And for that reason, she suffered. Now remember, the vision, it's the vision of the harlot and her judgment. In contrast with the harlot, we find the bride the image of the bride is an image of righteous and just government. You have an image of an eschatological holy place and a presentation of life forever. 
and ever. Let me explain what I mean by that. When you stop and you look at the description of the holy city, the city is a city that's square, it's a cube, right? But when you stop and you look in Revelation and you see this cube, as he's measured everything out, and then you look in the Old Testament, in First Chronicles, the Holy of Holies is 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. And it is in that place that the power and presence of God dwelt among his people. And now, instead of just a high priest entering into the holy place once a year, now what you have is all the people of God entering into and living in the holy of holies, in the presence of God, where he has fulfilled his promise that they shall be my peoples, not just a people, but peoples, and God himself will be with them as God. There is an eternal life in the holy place, and the gates of the city are always open. Why? Because there's no one left to try to come in or bring war. What ends up happening? The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. Well, why is there a need for the healing of the nations? Because of everything that Babylon has done to bring harm to the people of God, and God spends eternity restoring his people highlighting that, that, you know what, we all are dependent upon him. That yes, while we have been given eternal life, he sustains us even in the age to come. You have the rivers of the water of life. You have the tree of life. And who's there? Those people whose names are written in the book of life. Here, there is justice and there is judgment. But what we find in the end is the bride is contrasted with the harlot. Much like if you read the book of Proverbs, you find two women there, one named wisdom, another named folly. And it is your job to determine with which woman you will be. And finally, we get to the end of Revelation. This little fancy thing called an epilogue where John takes all of the pieces, puts them in a nice little box, and puts a pretty bow on it. What do we have? We have a call to obedience. He notes that the words are trustworthy. And once again, chapter 22, verse 7, and behold, I am coming soon. Words of Jesus. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Are you obeying the word of God? You have the promise of Christ's coming. He says, you know what? I am coming soon. Now, we know that this is written to the churches. But at the same time, the end of the book gives an invitation that we can share with those around us. Beginning in verse 17. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. 
unlike Babylon that required that you take a mark and do all this stuff in order to buy or sell, take of the water of life without price. And then he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And check this out. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And then there is the call. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Good. All right. Well, Dan, there's a question that I've been dying to ask you all night. And so, so who is the Antichrist anyway? <laughs> <laughs> um, pick a person, point them out. I mean, at least th that's the history of how it's been working, actually, when we, when we stop and think about it. Um, so often people try to point to the Antichrist. I mean, there have been arguments of Hitler, Mussolini, I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan, because he had six letters in each, his first, middle, and last name. I mean, you, you, I mean, people come up with all these different ways to highlight the Antichrist. And here's the amazing thing. When you read the book of Revelation, the word Antichrist does not appear there at all. But John, in the epistles, writes about the Antichrist is coming and is already here, for there are many Antichrists. And he says, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. The one who denies Christ is the Antichrist. And so what we do is we spend a lot of time focusing on who is the Antichrist when the book opens with, with, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I think one of the things we have to be careful about as we read Revelation and we look at popular culture is that we not lose focus, that we recognize it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, not the revelation of the Antichrist. So you beautifully unfolded the visions and this overarching narrative of Revelation, but I never heard you use another R word, which is the rapture, which a lot of us grew up with. So where's the, where did that happen? I wish we'd all been ready. <laughs> and how many people just had flashbacks to their childhood? <laughs> when you look at Revelation, the closest point that you can possibly get to a rapture is when you see Jesus coming as the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19, as he comes in the glory of his saints. Now, here's what we normally do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little jumping around for a second, okay? What we normally do is we say, well, see, the rapture took place before Revelation starts, or the rapture takes place when John is called to come up here, and I'm like, but he's receiving a vision from the Lord. So where does this come from? What we find is that we will often jump to Revelation chapter 4, we'll go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll turn to Matthew chapter 24, and we start in Matthew and we say, see, Jesus says that one shall be taken and one shall be left. Well, you don't want to be left behind. Okay, I'm going to reverse that for just a second, okay? 
Jesus also says in that same passage, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. In the days of Noah, Noah and his family were the ones who were left as everyone else was swept away. So within that framework of Matthew's gospel, you want to be left. If you are not left, you have been swept away into judgment. Danger, Will Robinson, danger. And then we have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it talks about, I'm just going to turn there because this is the famous one that everybody goes to. Here we go. It's a great and beautiful passage. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do, do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. What we find in this passage is the coming of the Lord. Well, here's what happens. When a conquering king, and sometimes even the bridegroom would come, you would go out to meet that individual who's coming with that party, and then they would lead you back into the city. The language that Paul is using here is one of a king who has triumphed, who comes and leads his people as they have met him in triumphant procession back to the earth. Now let, let's jump into that for a moment. Paul explains that we are the offspring of Abraham and heirs of the promise. He says that's in Galatians. And if we are the offspring of Abraham and the heirs of the promise, and he says in Romans that Abraham recognized that he was the heir of the whole world. You know, that whole thing of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the, the meek shall inherit the earth. It's the whole thing, y'all. And therefore, why would God destroy the inheritance that he has promised me? And therefore, what we really see is us meeting the Lord and then him leading us back to earth, our eternal home. Notice something. The holy city comes from heaven to earth, and God dwells with us in the fullness of his presence here on earth this place, our home. So where do we get the idea then of going up somewhere else? Well, that's a fun, fun question. <laughs> the idea of the rapture and going away, yes, there is going to be a being caught up with the Lord in the air, and we will forever be with him. But it does not say we're going to party in heaven for seven years while 
everything goes crazy here on the earth. What the Bible does say is that we will forever be with him. The idea of the rapture really came around in the 1800s. If you read in the writings of the early church, you read scripture, you don't really see anything until about the middle of the 19th century of what we today call rapture theology. It developed in Western Europe, it spread into the Americas, and it makes us feel good and special. Why? Because we don't have to endure anything. And in some ways, I think it feeds into our cultural escapism that pervades our culture. Okay, so while we're blowing apart just the theologies that we all grew up in, that's, this is great. So, yeah. uh, you know, uh, so this other passage that um, has confounded a lot of people, including myself, that our young adult Bible study dove into the other night, which is Revelation 20. Ooh, Lord, have mercy. And uh, hey, we're not going to go easy on you. That's, that's how this goes. <laughs> There's this whole thing uh, that's been termed the millennium, this thousand-year period and it's cool when it talks about God's people reigning with him for a thousand years and mm -hmm. Satan is bound and that sounds all great, but then he gets let out again. And I always, that always seemed weird the way it's written. It's like, what, what's that all about? So what, can you kind of unpack just this whole millennium, Revelation 20, this whole situation going on here? Fun times. <laughs> okay, so first of all, has anybody ever seen the... Oh, what was it? the television show Lost? Okay, it, it was out a couple of years ago and you always had these flashbacks and then you started having flash forwards and you didn't know where you were in the timeline all of a sudden. Um, other shows like or the movie Inception where it's like, are you in the dream world or are you not? So in Revelation, if you were looking for our nice Western linear framework, you're not gonna get it. And this is one of those sections where it's like, there is like there is a disturbance in the force like there is there is a modification the space-time continuum has been broken but now let's look at it from a literary point of view because what happens in revelation is that you start with that introduction in first vision and everything then takes you through the rest of the book so back in the message to the church in smyrna in chapter 2 beginning in verse 8 we talked about Jesus appearing as the one who had died and come back to life. And in verse 10, he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. I want you to notice something. 10 days is mentioned. And people say, well, is it a literal 10 days? Is it figurative? I think beyond that debate, the issue is, God is noted, it is for a designated period of time that this will take place. So when Satan is then thrown into the pit, verse 7 of chapter 20 notes, and when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison. God exacts divine retribution upon Satan for what he has done to the people of God. And so that's why you have, I think, the, the imprisonment and then the release from the imprisonment. But then what's the purpose of the imprisonment? The imprisonment highlights divine retribution. The release then leads to the ultimate eternal punishment of Satan along with the first beast 
and the second beast of Revelation, a.k.a. the false prophet. And so I think it really, instead of following a linear framework, it's more so highlighting God's divine justice. And Satan is like, I'm out. I got out. Let me see what I can do. Only for it to lead to his ultimate elimination from the lives of God's people. So you kind of mentioned how Revelation kind of plays with time and it's, mm -hmm. And there's several times in the book of Revelation where it seems like, okay, this is done. Oh, wait, we still have more. Oh, now it's, now it's the judge. Now it's finishing. No, there's still more. Can you talk about just why, do we, why does it seem like things kind of come to a conclusion multiple times as you go through? So especially when you get to that second vision, it's like you have seven seals. And then you have seven trumpets. And the awkward thing is it's like, wait a minute. Did the first trumpet come out of the seventh seal? Well, yeah. And then did the first bowl or the first vial come out of the seventh trumpet? And you're like, yeah, it's like one of those little dolls that you keep opening, you find another little doll inside, and it's like, wait, there's more, wait, there's more. And I, and I tell you that because of one thing. When you stop and think about it, how many times is the earth destroyed? I mean, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's like a quarter of the waters in, in, the, in the seals. And then you get to like half, and then it's like two-thirds of things. And it's like, wait a minute. So if a quarter of the earth is destroyed, then like a, ha a half and another third. I'm like, wait a minute. What's left? And I think that's the key thing. And it reminds me of Joseph in the book of Genesis where Pharaoh has two dreams. And Joseph actually tells Pharaoh the two dreams are actually one, but it is to confirm that God will indeed do this. And I think that repetition of the destructions, that repetition of the judgment is to confirm to God's people, I will bring this about because I keep my promises. So with that, we talk about scrolls, and there's bowls, and there's seals. Mm -hmm. Do you think those are meant to be symbolic? Have they already happened? Are they still to come? All of the above? Yeah, talk a little bit yes. about... Yeah. <laughs> how, do we, how do you look at those, those, those different images? So when you look at all of these different frameworks, one of the things we have to remember is what apocalypse as a genre has a lot of weird features. So for example, when you look at an apocalypse beyond the book of Revelation, beasts, what are beasts? You look at Daniel, what are all these beasts for? Beasts are rulers that oppress the people of God. Beasts are those who are actually in power within the empires and within the governments that bring oppression. They force the people to do other things, otherwise they die. And so when you look at all of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, it's like, well, I haven't seen the waters turn to blood quite yet. But here's what I have seen. I've seen God bring judgment in a variety of ways. And what better way to remind the people of God that God is able to and is willing to exact judgment and to bring about the redemption of his people than to appeal to that which they already know. I mean, one of the things you find in churches is the power of testimony. 
You find the power of remembering the things that God has done. And as you read through the Old Testament especially, you find, and this was set as a memorial to remind people of what God did here. You have a memorial here. And you have all of these different memorials where you look around and you say, oh, remember what God has done. Now what we have right now is Facebook memories for the most part. <laughs> And that ties us into saying, okay, well, what happened eight years ago today that you posted online? Sadly, most of the things we post online are not what God has done, but that's another issue for another day. But I think that what we are actually looking at with these seals is not simply a me trying to figure out when it's going to happen. It's more so a case of me recognizing God is the one in ultimate authority, and He breaks the seals. And he pours out his judgments and he does all these things and therefore I can leave it up to God because in a book that's full of symbols why do we suddenly try to make some of these aspects concrete and I think that I mean you know we have the seven churches and we know they were seven historical churches but for them the seals trumpets and bowls mean nothing to them as the original recipients. And so if we try to make them mean something to us, and when I say that they would mean nothing to the original recipients, if they were things in our day with Apache helicopters and COVID and all these things, it would mean nothing to them. And so it has to be something that means something to them. And I think a lot of it is appeals to the literature of their day, the things they would have recognized as the judgment of God. So along with that, you see a lot of numbers that are mm -hmm. repeated, you know, sevens and twelves and things like that. Are there significance to some of the numbers that you see, repetition or multiples of those numbers? Are there? Oh, absolutely. So you have the seven spirits of God which are before the throne of God. Well, what you find, and you have to realize that there's a distinction between the heavenly realm, remember that whole issue of the transcendent spatial reality that we find. There's a heavenly realm and there's an earthly realm. So we see Jesus speaking to the angel of the church at the beginning of each message. But at the end, we hear the Spirit speaking to the churches because the Spirit is here on earth and is acting in alignment in earth with that which Jesus is doing in the heavenlies. And as a result, we have to recognize there are parallels along the way. So the seven spirits of God is the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit. And we see there's seven spirits in the heavenly realm vision. But on earth, there's the spirit who speaks and who acts. We find seven churches. Well, now, we know there are churches in Corinth and Colossae and all these other places. So why these seven? Well, seven is usually a number that highlights completeness and wholeness. You have the 144,000. The 144,000, well, you had 12 tribes of Israel, 12 like to, to like basically square on itself just to highlight the bigness of it. And a thousand is a good round number for census taking. I mean, you go and you read the Old Testament, and it wasn't like it was like, well, there were 33,756 people of this tribe. Like... They were always round numbers. And so what we find with, with all of these numbers is, is there symbolism? Absolutely. I mean, you have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, you have seven bowls. I mean, all of these pieces come together to present to us a framework 
full of numbers, full of symbols that people in their day would have known. It goes even to 666, the famous mark of the beast, which in some of your Bibles, if you look, there's actually a note that there's a variant of 616. Little nerdy moment for a moment. So why would the numbers be different? Well, in Revelation 13, beginning in verse 16, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Hmm, there's a name. Whose name was on the money? Caesar's. And if you calculated the name of Nero in particular, it was 666. Well, we have different mints in, in the U.S. You can look at some coins and tell, okay, wait, this was in Denver, this was in Philadelphia, this was... So we, we know that there are slight distinctions between coins. And in another part of the empire, they left off the Neron and just left it as Nero, and the value of that final letter would have been 50. Well, 666 minus 50 gives you 616. This was a common thing called gematria that you find within the ancient culture. There was actually a guy who wrote a, I have to find this book, but he gave a paper at a conference on ancient graffiti. Yeah, ancient graffiti. <laughs> and there was a graffiti piece that was written out and it translated to, I love the one whose name is and gave a number. And if people are insiders and they know the people in the area and they get it, all of a sudden you can figure out whose name this is and you can figure out who this person has declared their love for. Well, John is writing to a bunch of insiders in the church who would know the great persecution that arose upon the Christians first arose under the leadership of Nero. Now, Nero was gone, but the point is, hey, it's coming from the top. It's coming from the empire because John presents it as, hey, by the way, in case you had any questions about it, Satan's the one empowering this thing, so be careful. And he's got it from the top of the empire, the emperor himself. So we don't live in the Roman Empire now. And you talked earlier about kind of the mark of the beast versus the seal of the Lord on the forehead. How, what do we do with that today? What do we do with if we're not in the Roman Empire and there's, we don't have to worry about Nero, he's long gone. Right. How, how do we know that we've got that seal of Christ in our forehead and we're not maybe being tricked into putting this, you know, taking this mark of the beast? Because that, that was always when I was growing up, it was like, well, don't do this because you're going to, you know, we, you joked about the COVID vaccine, but all right. sorts of things of like, well, don't do this because you're going to get the mark of the beast. Don't do that. H how do we guard against kind of receiving that mark and make sure that we've got that seal. I think one of the main things that we have to recognize is people always say, well, am I going to get tricked into taking the mark? No, not possible. It's not a tricking thing. It's more so a case of, am I following after Jesus? 
Am I living according to His ways? Am I being faithful to His Word? Because if you're doing all of those things, there is no mark that you can take that's going to remove what God is doing in your life. It's, it's interesting because I, I like the fact that the language of sealing occurs in Revelation because I think it ties in beautifully with Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus where he talks about being sealed with the Spirit as the guarantee of our redemption. The Spirit is the down payment of that which is to be fully manifested in the age to come. And so what I see is not a, oh wait, is it this? Is it, I mean, is it microchips in our, in our um, credit cards? It was direct deposit. It was barcodes. It was, I mean, like credit cards. There have been all of these things, and I think more often than not, people are more concerned about the mark of the beast than they are about the seal of the Spirit. But if you are in Christ, you don't have to worry about the mark. And I think that's the thing we have to figure out and rest in is that our hope is in Christ and Christ, God would be an evil God if he's like, ha, 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 I'm going to watch you fall and just mess everything up. Even though you're trying to seek after me, I'm going to make sure that you don't succeed. That doesn't match the character of God. That's not the God of Scripture. Because if God were an evil, vindictive God like that, I mean, that would just be, that'd be sick. And so I think what we have to do is recognize that God cares for His people, and because He cares for His people, there is no way by which you can accidentally take the mark. So on the topic of the character of God, as you read the Revelation, just at first blush without diving into context, there are certain passages that are kind of disturbing. There's a battle that ends up with birds gorging on the flesh of all these people. So yes, that does sort of seem like a vindictive God. How do you talk about the, the character of God when you can see very serious moments of judgment in Revelation? How do you see the love of God or how does that, how do you square that all up? Ooh, I like that question. I think we have to wrestle with and come to a conclusion of recognizing that God's justice is a demonstration of His love. Because what we often say is, well, a loving God would not do this. Okay. And we make plenty of calls about what a loving God would or would not do. But then the question becomes, to what measures would you go to save the ones that you love. In the event that someone did a horrible thing, let's say someone blatantly committed murder of your loved ones, and the judge is like, hey, it's all good. Would you say that justice has been rendered? Absolutely not. That's not justice. And so if God is a God of justice, which, I mean, the Psalms actually say that justice and righteousness are the foundation of His throne. Therefore, if God did not judge, then that would not be a God of love. 
That would not be a God who rescues and vindicates his people. That would not be a God who demonstrates care for those who say they follow after him. Now, that doesn't mean that we get to go. And I think and here's the thing. God always judges rightly. We mess it up. And that's where we have to make sure that we are not trying to stand on the seat of judgment or sit in the seat of judgment and take God's place as to how he does things. So kind of staying in the Old Testament themes, the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, you see a tree of life. Mm -hmm. At the end of the Bible in Revelation, you see the tree of life. What's John, what's John trying to say by including that, by bringing that image back from the beginning of the Bible? In order to talk about the tree of life, you've got to hit on Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1 with the message to the church in Ephesus. Because you see, Jesus stand, is presented as standing in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And when you look at Old Testament imagery and you see the lampstands, the lampstands were, they had buds and almonds and leaves and all these arboreal or tree-like images and aspects to them. And then Jesus promises the overcomer in the church in Ephesus, to the one who overcomes, I will give to each from the tree of life, which is in the garden of God, or in the paradise of God. And when you look at that language of being in the paradise of God, it takes us back to Genesis 3. And then we have to ask, what is the first sin? Remember, what's going on with the church in Ephesus is power abuse. They're standing for righteousness, but they're being jerks for Jesus. They're abusing people to make sure that everything's in line and they're right. And when you stop and look at it, the very first sin was actually power abuse. God gave humanity dominion over creation. And he says, you can eat of any tree of the garden, eat of all these, these, these plants, but don't eat of that one. And power abuse is utilizing the power you have to do that which you should not do. And after that, what do we see? God gave both the man and the woman dominion. Then you get to Genesis 3. After power abuse has taken place, you now find the perpetuation of power abuse among humanity. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. The one who was to rule with Adam is now being ruled by Adam. And that was a direct result of the fall. And so now all of a sudden, we see the tree of life once again. And we don't see the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is vitally important. And in the end, we see a restoration of humanity's dominion where they rule all things rightly in unity and in harmony in the presence of God, living out the ultimate reality of what God originally intended, but now even better than it was before. So you've referenced the church, seven churches and we've been preaching through the seven churches. Is there a particular church of the seven that you think represents the American church more, ac more, more accurately than others right now? <laughs> Let's see. Let's go with the ones that don't. 
Not Smyrna. Not Philadelphia. Why? Smyrna, Smyrna and Philadelphia totally lacked power in their culture. Now, who are we like? We're like Ephesus. We'll stand up for righteousness' sake and we will bust you in the head in the name of the Lord because we know that we're right and you're wrong. <laughs> we got some of Pergamum, the church is divided, you know, you got people over here doing some stuff over here, but you know, well, but you are being oppressed in some other areas, so okay. Thyatira. This church has power. But here's what they do. They permit Jezebel to come in. They permit her to deceive God's servants. And deception, when it takes place, is done by a few characters in Revelation. Jezebel, the ancient serpent, the devil, the harlot, and the second beast. All of those who are associated with the worldly empire are those who actually perform the act of deception. And what is going on in the church is we are actually allowing for ourselves to be deceived because we appeal to secular media for our worldview more than we appeal to the Word of God for our worldview. We don't listen to the pastors and the teachers and the elders in churches. We listen to, pick, pick your news source, and that determines your particular worldview. Then we're in Sardis. You know what? Sardis, the message to the church in Sardis is weird because it's like, what, what are they doing? It's like, we're too good for this. We are beyond the ability to be deceived. We got this. We're comfortable. And Lord knows, we are, like, we are like Laodicea, like nobody's business. We are rich, we are prosperous, we have no need. We can have church without Jesus. We have our lights, we have our sound systems, we have all this stuff. You know what? Who needs the Lord? We've got this. We don't need you to show up, God. Actually, if you don't show up, Lord, church might last a little bit shorter time, and I can get to the buffet line a little bit faster on Sunday morning. <laughs> So like I said, we're, we're not like about two of the churches, and those are the churches that Jesus says the good stuff to. I would say we are some weird mixed amalgamation of the other five. So what's the word of encouragement then? Come on, somebody. The word of encouragement is follow after Jesus. I remember I was asked this question one day in a job interview, and the question was, on the spectrum of conservatism to progressivism, where do you find yourself? And I said, I find myself to be biblical. That's the aim. It's to be biblical. And when you use words like conservative and progressive or liberal or anything else in between, here's the problem. No matter what camp you find yourself in, the Word of God will offend whatever group there is. But what we've done 
is we have taken on the ways of the world and we have appealed to Caesar for our theology. We have appealed to Caesar for how we stand on things. We appeal to our governments. We watch Fox. We watch CNN. We watch the BBC. Pick whatever news source you have. We appeal to secular governments, Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, fill in the blank. We appeal to all of these things and they have never been a good source of theology. They have never been a good source for how we as the church function in the world. So therefore, it would benefit us as the people of God not to go to a political party to solve the problems of the world because Jesus did not say to look to political parties. We are, as the writer of Hebrews says, to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we follow after what he does and says in this world. That is how problems will be solved. Because remember this, any worldly system that you look at, any worldly system that you aim to be like, Revelation says, behold, the kingdoms of the world have become that of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever. That means, I don't care if your empire has been around 200 years or 2,000 years, every single one of them will bow down before the name of Jesus. End of story. Sorry, I didn't mean to preach it, y'all, tonight, but that, yeah. So our heart's desire to have this time tonight was to grow closer to Jesus. Mm -hmm. our, our mission statement is to becoming like Jesus together. And we know that that happens through the study of this book. Mm -hmm. How do you see, even though the, these are all separate books that were put together in a canon, but in what way does... The book of Revelation sort of sum up this story that God's been writing from Genesis to Revelation. How do you see Revelation kind of tying up the loose ends from all, from all these themes that have been running through Scripture? So to, to sound a little preachy for just a second, from Genesis to Revelation you have from creation to consummation. And all of a sudden what we find is that the entirety of the book from Genesis to Revelation gives you the story of God seeking after his people. A lot of times we say, I found the Lord, but we were the ones who were lost. And God came even as the story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one. And we look in Revelation and all of a sudden we, we find God is seated on his throne and his whole aim is not simply the destruction of humanity that's rebellious against him. The whole aim of Revelation is a call to say, don't suffer at the hands of God's judgment, but come to him for he is merciful, he is kind, he is loving, he is gracious, and he forgives a multitude of sins and welcomes you into his kingdom. And as a citizen of his kingdom, you now have a responsibility to make the call to other people and say, come and drink of the waters of the rivers of life without price. Come, behold the lamb. Come, worship the king. Come and live as part of his kingdom and serve as a kingdom and priests 
who intercede on behalf of those who still have not yet come. The story of Revelation is the crowning event of God finally fulfilling his promise to dwell with his people in the fullness of his holiness, where we, as Paul says, will know him as we have been known. Dan, thank you for meeting with us tonight. This has been such a gift for us to just sit under your teaching. Can we just show our appreciation to Dan for coming up? <laughs> Thank you for being here. Um, this has really kind of been an experiment for us. It's the first time we've ever done sort of a, an event that's specifically to dive deeper into a topic that we're already studying. And this has been a kind of a, a successful test for us. Um, if this is something that you'd like to see continue, um, this has been a completely free event, and we hope you've enjoyed it. And it con continues to be a free event. However, if you'd like to see these kind of events continue, um, you have seen some donation boxes out in the foyer. Um, any, uh, this was actually not in the budget, so we're going to find money to make it happen. But um, if you'd like to see more of these events, um, feel free to contribute to Community Covenant Church, whether it's online or, or uh, by check or cash. But just thank you for coming and enjoying. And also, if you don't have a church home, we will continue our study of the seven letters of Revelation this Sunday at both 8.30 both and 10.30 right here in our worship center. And so if you don't have a place to worship, you are invited to join us on this journey as we become like Jesus together. So thanks so much for coming. Have a great night. Drive safe.